0: Chapter 13, Part 2 of History of the Christian Church During the First Six Centuries This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. History of the Christian Church During the First Six Centuries by Samuel Cheatham Chapter 13, Part 2, Ecclesiastical Ceremonies and Art besides the eucharistic celebrations the faithful had also meetings for worship of another kind we have already seen that before the end of the third century hours of prayer were prescribed for the devout in the fourth fifth and sixth centuries the hour system was developed so that seven hours were observed the eastern and western offices for the several hours widely as they now differ probably owe their origin to a common source The earliest form, appears to have consisted in the recitation of psalms, together with prayers and hymns, but with no lessons, and to have been designed for use during the night and in the early morning. Saints Basil and Chrysostom and others often speak of these services. The origin of these prayers has been traced with much probability to the eighteen prayers used in the Jewish synagogue. The earliest form of the Roman office appears to have consisted solely of the Psalter, so distributed as to be recited once a week. At the end of the appointed number of psalms for the daily office, pater noster was said. This seems to have constituted the entire office, which contained no lessons, hymns, or collects. Lessons were in early times only read at the Mass. The nocturnal office of the Eastern Church and the Mozarabic Matins contain no lessons at the present time. Quote. But the Council of Laodicea, about A.D. 360, enjoined that in assemblies for worship the Psalms should not be said continuously, but that after each Psalm there should be election, and this only from canonical Scripture and in cassian's time we find that the custom of reading two scripture lessons between every twelve psalms was an immemorial custom with the monks of egypt st benedict in the offices which he instituted prescribed no lesson during the short nights of summer but during the winter half of the year there were to be three lections and these not only from scripture but from those doctors of the church who were in the highest repute the elaborate system of our offices, ultimately formed, could naturally only be kept up in a religious house. If did not from the first form part of the non-Eucharistic office, the reading of Scripture was at any rate highly commended. It was the mark of a good Christian to be familiar with Holy Scripture. Copies of the Bible were commonly on sale, and rooms were provided in churches to which those who would might retire to meditate on god's law such teachers as chrysostom and augustine rejected with indignation the excuses of the lay people who alleged that they had no time to read the scriptures or that they were unable to understand them the former in fact traces the corruptions of the church to the prevailing ignorance of scripture litanies or rogationes processions that is about the fields with supplications for fruitful seasons and for freedom from pestilence and famine were instituted by memertus bishop of vienne in the year 452 on the three days immediately preceding ascension day marriage signifying to us as it does the mystical union that is betwixt christ and his church has from primitive times received the blessing of the christian ministry The anxious care of the church for the sacredness of family life caused it to forbid the union of near kindred whether by blood or by marriage, while in some cases it recognized the validity of unions which the state did not sanction, as, for instance, those between slave and free. Marriages of Catholics with heathens, Jews, or heretics were naturally discouraged and were punished by a period of penance adultery of either husband or wife was generally recognized as a ground of divorce, and also unnatural crimes and apostasy from the faith. Remarriage of persons who had been divorced was permitted by some authorities, but in the end came to be forbidden even to the innocent party. Prayers and benedictions for the Mass which accompanied marriage are found in the Galatian Sacramentary, but no account of the marriage ceremonies of the West which differed in some points from those of the East, seems to be found earlier than that of Pope Nicholas I in the ninth century, who describes to the Bulgarians the immemorial usage of the Latin Church, a usage which probably dates from an earlier period than the 6th century. With us, he says, no band of gold or silver or of any other metal is placed on the heads of the contracting parties in the marriage ceremony. We have first... The betrothal an engagement to contract marriage at a future time entered into with the full consent of the parties themselves and of those in whose power they are their parents or guardians the bridegroom gives earnest to the bride by placing a ring on her finger and either then or at some other time appointed hands to the bride in the presence of witnesses summoned for the purpose a formal contract to provide the dowry mutually agreed upon In the church, they present themselves with the oblations which they are to offer to God by the hand of the priest, and not till then do they receive the sacred veil and the benediction as the first pair received a blessing in paradise. Those who marry a second time, however, do not receive the veil. On leaving the church, there are placed on their heads crowns which are kept there for the purpose, and the nuptial rites being thus completed... They are exhorted with god's help to lead a life of unity for ever after these are the pope says the principal ceremonies in marriage though there are others in use which he does not think it necessary to specify and he lays it down very clearly that nothing is absolutely necessary for a valid marriage but the mutual consent of the parties to be married quoting chrysostom to the same effect the greek practice with which the pope contrasts his own was to place crowns on the head of the bride and bridegroom soon after the service began the use of the ring seems almost universal but while in the west the bridegroom alone gives the ring to the bride as earnest in the betrothal ceremony in the east the bride also gives a ring to the bridegroom the crowning is so important a rite in the greek church that it gives name to the marriage service while in the latin church it seems little more than a country custom of putting a peculiar head-dress on the wedded pair when they left the church the pope does not mention the joining of hands but it is clear that this was a usual observance both in east and west the veil spoken of is not the bride's veil but a purple covering spread over both bride and bridegroom at the time of the benediction as a token of their union as may readily be supposed, the Christian church did not neglect the sick and dying. Not only did the ministers of the church visit the sick, offer prayer with and for them, lay hands upon them, and administer holy communion to them, but they also, after the apostolic precept and example, anointed them with oil in the name of the Lord. Innocent I, early in the fifth century, seems to have been the first to apply the word sacramentum to this rite. And it was not until a much later period that it came to be regarded simply as a safeguard for one actually on the point of death and to be called extreme unction according to the pseudo areopagite the body of the departed was anointed with oil in a quasi sacramental manner but this testimony is unsupported and probably represents the writer's sense of what would be fitting rather than the fact the wreath often placed on the head of the corpse was probably intended simply as an emblem of victory over death but found objectors as savoring of paganism the superstitious custom of placing a consecrated host within the lips of a corpse or in the coffin was condemned by several councils. violent expressions of grief tearing of the garments the use of sackcloth and ashes the bearing of cypress branches and the like were held to belong rather to those who sorrowed without hope than to those who had christ in them the hope of glory the funeral procession was almost always in the full light of day though lamps and torches were borne in it as well as branches of olive and palm the philosophic emperor julian forbade funerals in the daytime especially on the ground that to meet them was of ill omen from the fourth century onward attempts seem to have been made to bury as near as possible to a church for an edict of gratian repeats the old law against the burying in cities and expressly provides that no exception is to be made for places hallowed by the remains of apostles or martyrs the custom of holding a banquet or celebrating the eucharist at the tomb still lingered in the fourth century a custom arose in early times of placing lights on graves this, which seems to have been derived from paganism, was condemned by the Council of Elvira, and in the early part of the 5th century was attacked by Vigilantius, to whom Jerome replied in rather a half-hearted way, pleading that it was a practice of simple-minded people who meant no harm by it. Great care was exercised in the choice of persons to be ordained. Some classes were altogether excluded, as catechumens, persons newly baptized, baptized privately in severe sickness, or by heretics, or who after baptism had lived unworthily of their vocation, penitents, those who had been twice married, possessed or epileptic persons or such as they had suffered any bodily mutilation, all who exhibited themselves on the stage or in the circus, all slaves and even freedmen who were not clear of every obligation towards their former masters, all whose condition of life did not afford them the necessary freedom to devote themselves to the service of the Church as soldiers or members of the civil service. The State forbade those who were responsible for the payment of the imperial taxes, the curiales, to be withdrawn from this duty by ordination. In early times, a bishop seems not to have been ordained under the age of fifty years, Justinian's legislation required thirty-five. In practice, it was held sufficient if a bishop-elect had attained thirty years. Strict inquiry was made as to the candidate's soundness in the faith, his blamelessness of life, and his social condition. A provincial council in the sixth century decreed that no one should be ordained to the priesthood who had not served a year at least as lector or subdeacon. No one was ordained except to a particular church, his title to orders. Among the few exceptions to this rule were Paulinus and Jerome. The clergy in the period of which we are now treating were probably rarely educated for their work in a school of theology. Such schools do not appear to have existed in the West. And in the East, those which arose at Alexandria, Antioch, and elsewhere seem to have come to an end or lost their influence in the troubles of the 5th and 6th centuries. So long as the great pagan schools, such as those of Athens and Alexandria, continued to flourish, many young men of Christian families sought in them general culture and philosophical training, while they afterwards specially prepared themselves for the priesthood in the subordinate offices of the church or in monastic retirement. When, however, it became customary for the clergy of a city to live together in one dwelling under the superintendence of the bishop, such clergy houses commonly became seminaries in which candidates for orders were trained for their future work. The ceremonies which were used in admitting a person to the office for which he had been chosen were mainly two the imposition of hands, with prayer for the special grace required. And the formal delivery of the insignia and instruments of office the laying on of hands with a view to the conferring of spiritual gifts was in most cases the privilege of the episcopal order only but the presbyters who were present also laid their hands on the head of one who was being ordained as presbyter and there was no laying on of hands in the admission to office of subdeacons and others who filled the lower ranks in the service of the church THE DELIVERY TO one ADMITTED TO AN OFFICE OF THE INSTRUMENTS WHICH HE WAS TO USE WAS A NATURAL inauguration OF HIS NEW FUNCTIONS. A READER HAD TO READ, THE BOOK WAS DELIVERED TO HIM, AND HE READ. A SUBDEACON HAD TO WASH THE BISHOP'S HANDS, A PITCHER AND TOWEL WERE DELIVERED TO HIM, AS WELL AS THE CHALICE AND PATEN OF WHICH HE WAS TO HAVE CHARGE. A DEACON HAD, IN SOUTHERN COUNTRIES, TO DRIVE AWAY INSECTS FROM THE oblations UPON THE ALTAR, A fan for this purpose was delivered to him. The delivery of the Eucharistic vessels to a presbyter is not found in the oldest Western ordinals. Gregory of Nazianzus tells us that when he was made bishop, he was vested by his ordainers in a long tunic or alb and a mitre, but scarcely any other allusion to the custom of vesting a candidate is found until a much later date. A peculiar ceremony in the ordination of a bishop was the holding of the book of the Gospels over his head by two bishops while he received the benediction and the imposition of the hands of the other bishops. The use of Chrism in ordination is first alluded to by Gregory the Great. From early times, the clergy were forbidden to wear long hair and, In the later part of the 6th century, the tonsure seems to have become definitely established as a mark of separation between clergy and laity. Close quote. The shape of the tonsure varied in different churches. End of chapter 13, part 2